welcome to No More Shame, the podcast dedicated to breaking the shame narrative and healing the wounds of shame that hold us back. In each episode, Dr. Megan Clunan will be exploring the tools of psychology and the truths of Christian theology to help you live free from shame and in the reality of your true identity. So let's dive into today's episode. Thank you for joining the No More Shame podcast this week. This week is episode nine. We are on the verge of double digits. (laughs) Um, This week, we're going to be wrapping up our four-part series of Shame's one-liners. So we've addressed three specific one-liner statements in the previous weeks, uh, statements that Shame likes to tell us. And this week will be our fourth. Uh, This week, the one-liner that we're addressing kind of comes on the heels of last week's, one that often goes hand-in-hand with the you'll never change statement. That was what we talked about last week. And it's that of you're all alone. Or perhaps another way we sometimes hear this statement in our heads is you're the only one. Uh, But its it's base premise is, is essentially you're all by yourself. You're all alone. But my friends, this is a lie. Okay, I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Whatever you're dealing with, even if it feels unique to your life, meaning you've not struggled in this way before, you've not had to overcome something like this before, you may not directly know anyone else going through what you're going through, even though it feels unique to you, it is not unique to humanity. It's not unique to the human condition. There is someone else that has gone through or is going through what you're going through. You're not actually alone, but shame wants us to believe we are. Because if we can believe we are alone, we'll live like it. Because perception drives reality. I know you've probably heard the statement before, perception is reality. That's not actually true, is it? Because sometimes perception can be way left field. (laughs) That is not true at all. Um, It may not be reality, but it definitely drives reality. It can create reality. And so regarding this statement, if we live like we're all alone, well, we're going to create a life that is all alone. We'll create the very life, the very future that this one liner is proclaiming over us. In fact, in his book, The Soul of Shame by uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson, he says that shame literally disintegrates our minds, our lives in a predictable, inevitable trajectory, one that begins with separation and ends in the hell of utter isolation, aloneness. We're not created to live alone. We're not created to live in isolation. We're created for relationship, for relationship with God and for relationship with others. But shame pushes us often to this place of utter isolation, which is a hell in its own way. And so what does it mean to disintegrate? Let's go back into that statement a little bit. It disintegrates our minds, disintegrates our lives. When I think of disintegration, like the perfect word picture to me is always... um, Like if you take a piece of paper and you burn it, right? And you watch it turn to ash and then just fall apart. And then the lightest breeze, it doesn't have to be much at all. You just blow it wherever it wills, wherever it wishes. And there's no gathering it back. There's this division, the separation. Um, It's like a puzzle even, right? So think of a, a puzzle and you need all the pieces to make the whole picture. But there are pieces that are put together in different parts of, of a table or a room or whatever. But but the whole picture can never be seen because we don't ever put the whole puzzle into one one united whole. And so as a result of that, we don't really know what is supposed to have been created. I think a way of disintegration that our world kind of glorifies is through the term compartmentalization. And so I've actually heard people brag about being able to live a, quote, compartmentalized life. And although worthy sounding at first, the idea that we could be completely shut off to other areas of our lives while involved in a different area isn't healthy. And honestly, 
for a very long time, I lived a life like this. A lot of times, though, why we learn to live a compartmentalized life is because somewhere along the way, we learned that sharing all of us wasn't safe. It was maybe used to harm us. Maybe people made fun of it. Maybe people heard it. Maybe people just didn't value it the way that we had hoped they would value. And so we kind of, we shut those pieces off. And so, and we do that to survive. It could be because the way we're raised in our childhood experiences, that taught us that. It could be because we had a, like a toxic work environment and we learned, I can't bring all me here because that's going to be harmful. Whatever it may be, but like we, I would say compartmentalization may have its place for a season for survival, but it, it's not a way of life. It's not going to create flourishing. It's not going to let us thrive. So for example, you know, if I compartmentalize when I'm, when I'm at work, if I totally leave behind the fact that I'm also a mother, a wife, a Christian, an introvert, meaning I only so have so much energy for you people. Okay. A runner, etc., and so on and so forth. If I do this at work, then there are parts of me at work that no one will, will understand that I value. And I could do this in other areas of my life as well, Well, right? Like home is a one way we could do this and be like, nope, not going to bring the outside in and not going to talk about those things in here. Well, well, then you're not sharing with your family what's going on in a vast majority of your life. And church is another way we do that, right? Like, no, mm, mm, I know what uh, they want to see and they don't want to see that messy part. So I'm not bringing that in here. We can do this in so many other areas. We learn to play parts that are expected when we live like that. But that's not healthy. Our work, our faith, our home life is better when we learn how to integrate all the layers that make up who we are. When I don't have to hide away a part of me because it doesn't feel like it, quote, fits well here. That's a healthier life. The problem with much of the unhealth we see in our own lives, though, and in the lives of other people is that this one liner, essentially, of you're all alone, also don't bring in those pieces, right? This mindset has pushed us into a place where we are known in part in a lot of places, differently known with different parts, but never fully known. So for example, at church, those people may know I'm a Christian, but that surely isn't the place to bring in the fact that I'm struggling in my marriage or that my child needs the kind of help that I don't know how to give him or her or that I'm trying to figure out how to work with integrity in a business that may not be doing all things exactly on the ethical up and up or maybe even that I, I'm facing harassment because of my gender or my ethnicity in the field in which I work or whatever. But those church folks know that I'm a Christian. This kind of compartmentalization at work can look like those people know I'm educated and skilled to work here. I have a passion and insight for this area of service, but they don't hear anything from me that would point to the fact that I know Jesus. I contribute to the gossip at the coffee station as much as the next guy because I don't want to stand out. I want to blend into this work environment. If they need me to work longer hours, I will because sure, they see the ring on my finger, but in their eyes, family is not that important because I never talk about them or tell work no for the sake of them and so on. But this isn't healthy. If we're to live as whole people, then our whole selves need to be wholly brought into our lives. But we live in a world that admittedly too often says, we like this part of you, but that part isn't welcome here. That part isn't convenient. That part isn't comfortable. That part isn't clean. 
And so we believe the narrative it's selling. And as we live disintegrated, compartmentalized, but disintegrated, we find loneliness rather than wholeness. And loneliness is an epidemic in our culture right now. It is something that is on the rise and something that contributes to so much mental illness, so much relational struggle, so much components of, of low self-image, low self-worth. This is con- concept and and struggle of loneliness. And so we find ourselves in that place rather than wholeness when we live with the mentality of make sure you hide away what others may not be comfortable with, what others may not see, what others may not like. And when we do that, it might feel safer in the moment, but no one really knows us. So when shame comes calling with, you're all alone, you're the only one, it is so easy to buy. It is so easy to buy. Thompson, in his book, he goes on to share what he means by shame disintegrates the mind in a predictable way by providing the typical five steps of disintegration. So what is this, right? These are the five steps. Let's all learn them. I don't know if we don't learn them uh, to unlearn them. But these are the steps of basically moving into a divided self. One, we begin to physically turn away. We stop letting people in. We stop showing up. We stop turning towards people. Stop turning towards God. Mentally, the parts of our mind, they stop speaking to one another. We're not thinking along the lines of our whole selves anymore. We're like, wait, I can only show this part of me in this place, in this space, so that's all you're going to get. Thinking and feeling and sensing, they become disconnected. It's like living in a storm. It's very unstable. It's very unpredictable. Feelings and thoughts are not able to be clearly understood or described by our mind because we're not living in a whole space anymore. And so I start doing things in one area that contradict my life or belief or system in another area. And so I'm not living as a whole person anywhere. And then we shut down or shut out in an attempt to calm the painful emotional sensations going on within us. And, and what is that? That's isolation. And we isolate. In our isolation, we hear, you're the only one. You're all alone over and over again. And it becomes this ever deepening void where all we can see is ourselves and our aloneness. And there's actually empirical support. There's research support that shame leads us into overly self-concerned lives. While guilt is other concerned, shame is me concerned. And we think this kind of over-concern with ourselves would lead us into healing. Like, I just really need to focus on me and work on me. But it doesn't, actually, my friends. It actually just wounds us over and over again. We almost end up living in a vacuum here. Um... Christine Kane in her book, Unashamed, says, our wounds of worthlessness are constantly being chafed by these accusations and never allowed to heal because we believe them and we repeat them to ourselves. It's like we're just choosing to reopen that wound over and over and over again. And that kind of keeps us in this shame cycle. So what I want to encourage you to do today with this information is let's flip the steps of disintegration. Let's flip it on its head. Let's walk it back. My husband, he's a student pastor. He often says, you can walk a thousand miles in the wrong direction, but choose to turn around back into the direction Jesus has given you for your life. And he will be right there. Jesus will be right there, ready to walk that path back with you. That's literally the promise of Jesus, my friends, that he will never leave you and never forsake you. He didn't promise life would be easy. That's never in the Bible. Okay. He literally promised it would be a challenge. Okay. Consider the cost but he promised you would never be alone. And this isn't just 
the God of the New Testament, God of Old Testament said the same thing. Once you are his, you are never alone. New Testament speaking, Hebrews 13, 5 is really specifically where that verse comes from or that that reference I just said comes from. It says, for he himself has said, God himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, some of you may be familiar with that as it's a part of the Great Commission. And it says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, here it is, I am with you always to the end of the age, forever. But Old Testament, Deuteronomy 31, 6 to 8, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Moses summons Joshua to him in the presence of all of Israel and says, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then Isaiah 43, which is one of my favorites of all time. But now this is what the Lord says. He who is your creator, Jacob, and he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God. This is who he is. This is the father that we have. He does not abandon his children. This is a common thread throughout all of scripture. A systematic understanding of who God is, is one that never leaves. You are never alone when once you are his. And so let's unpack again the walk back. Let's walk this back. It starts with... Instead of physically turning away, we need to choose physically to remain even in the discomfort. Okay, I'm going to say that. It may not be comfortable. This doesn't mean maybe for some of us that we can dive headfirst into into the deep end. But it does mean we give the waters a chance. Psalm 34, 8 says, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. It doesn't say get your fill, okay? Because some of us were like, I can't fill up on this just yet. I'm not really sure. Not really sure how to do this. Not really sure what this is all about. That's okay. Taste and see. He has a hope for you that will not disappoint. Early on in our marriage, um, whenever Chase and I would have an argument, I would fold my arms, like cr- like cross them across my my chest. I would fold my arms. Um, I would do this because it would like it was like a physical way that kind of like made me feel safer, right? But it was. It was a physical turning away is really what it was. It got to the point that every time I'd cross my arms, he would actually see it and he'd call it out and he'd be like, hey, uh, could you could you uncross your arms while we're having this conversation? <laughs> um, because he knew it was me shutting him off in a sort of way. And to be fair, I mean, I'll be real. It was hard to uncross my arms. It was hard to do that then. And truly, it's hard to do it sometimes now. It's just like my go-to self-protective move. But when I do it, it physically turns me away from him, creating distance rather than resolution. It hinders our communication and relationship rather than bringing healing. And this is just a small example, I know, but we do this in so many other ways as people, some much bigger ways. So we can ghost people, we block people, we cancel people. And, you know, we do this thinking it's what's going to make us feel better. Maybe it 
and maybe it does for a period of time. Maybe it does make us feel safer for a period of time. But we we do that too much, though. Our world is going to get really small really quick. And we're going to become our world. And what is that? That's isolation. That's aloneness. That's you're all alone. To be healthy, we've got to move away from a preoccupation with the self. We cannot be our world and live a healthy life. This is impossible. Our creator understood this, and so he came for us. My friends, he came for a relationship with us, for a relationship with you in the form of Jesus Christ, reminding us, telling us that we're not meant to live alone. We aren't meant to live for ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 actually reminds us that we're not meant to live to ourselves, but to God. So my encouragement to you, friends, is before you turn towards others, though, that's really our starting point as we turn towards God. Our vertical relationship with God will empower and rightly orient us to our horizontal relationships with others. So again, let's walk it back. The first step to walking back, um, instead of turning physically away, we need to physically turn towards. There's a, um, there's a great book called Imagining the Kingdom, How Worship Works, and it's by this guy named Jamie K. Smith. Um, within this book, the author talks about how even in our physical expression of worship, we can acknowledge and come before our creator God in a way that reorients us back to the right knowledge of our intended place, which is to be in relationship and not isolation. Sometimes it's through the physical act of worship. We actually feel more connected. But too often, we wait for the feeling to physically act, don't we? So cognitive behavioral research actually tells us, though, this is important, that feelings follow action, not necessarily the other way around. And in a world that is so driven by their emotions, so driven by our feelings, it's really hard to believe that because there's so much in our world that's like, well, if you don't feel it, you don't do it. If it feels right, then you should do it, right? But... Research actually tells us action leads feelings. Action leads emotions, not the other way around. And so, for example, when I feel tired, right, and drained and lethargic, the last thing I want to do is get up and drink a big glass of water and go for a walk. But action-wise, decision-wise, I know that if I do that, I'll feel somewhat rejuvenated. So I need to physically get up and go do that. Or when Another one would be an example um, when I'm at odds with my husband and I don't want to have the hard conversation because it's annoying. Okay, let's be real. <laughs> Sometimes you're like, I really just don't want to do this today. Um, it's annoying um, to do this yet again. My feeling for that is not going to lead me towards anything that would say, yeah, you know, go ahead, open that door for that lovely conversation. <laughs> However, I'm not controlled by my feelings. If my behavior is controlled by me in that moment, and I say, no, you know, I know that this is for the best. It may be awkward at first and annoying, okay? But the issue actually gets dealt with. And instead of it being something that continues to be a problem, I'm actually able to address something with him and we're able to address it and we're able to move on. Then it's a beautiful thing. Guess what? My feelings change after that. My feelings change. Actions can lead my feelings to respond rather than the other way around. When my actions lead my feelings in the direction I know they need to go, whether it's energy from walking and drinking a glass of water or from feeling connected and being able to enjoy the rest of the day or the evening with my husband because we've actually had the hard and uncomfortable conversation, it's a life that's much more worth living. And so we need to physically have um, action, physically live in a space of, of acting in emotion, of turning towards rather than turning away, even when I do not feel like it. 
I can choose to do it to lead then my feelings. And my friends, I would say the very first move we need to make in our physical act of turning towards, remember, because I want to encourage you, your, again, your vertical relationship, your relationship with God will help you in those horizontal, human, peer, family, coworker relationships, exponentially so. Reorient all of that rightly so. But it begins with our relationship with God. And so the first physical act of turning towards is to physically get on your knees, get your Bible out, open the word of God and invite the Holy Spirit into the process. And I would even encourage you to pray something along the lines of Holy Spirit. I don't know. And maybe you're there and that's okay. I don't know how to make this awareness of you just like cultivate in my life. Like it's not some magical thing. I can't do this on my own, but I'm inviting you in. I want to know that I'm not alone. I want to know that I've been made for relationship with you. And I want to know that you are here. I don't know how to know that I'm not alone. Maybe I don't, I don't know what it means to live in a relationship or with you, or maybe I once did, but I feel so far away right now. My friends, I've been there. I've prayed those very words in the past. Some days require it still, but turn to him and tell him. Open the word of God and tell him. Any of the verses I referenced earlier are great to take to heart. There's verses from Hebrews and Deuteronomy and Matthew and Isaiah. We turn towards him. We invite him into that space. There was a season in my life, actually, um, it was a pretty pretty bad season, actually. Uh, I went through something so excruciatingly painful. Uh, perhaps that will be a topic for another day. But I remember I probably asked Jesus a thousand times a day during that season for months, for months. Jesus, where are you? And every single time, every single time he would say, I'm right here. I'm right here. Every single time I asked him, Jesus, are you near? He would say, yeah, I am. I would pray and be like, Jesus, be near. And he would say, I am. As horrible as what it was that I went through, he's never left. And I would guarantee with everything that I am, I know he will do the same for you. I know it. And so maybe it's those verses I referenced earlier, but maybe it's not. Maybe you honestly, starting with the Psalms is great. Open, the Psalms are essentially in the middle of the Bible. Open them up because they're beautiful examples of the psalmist often saying things like, God, where are you? Where have you gone? Are you, have you gone away from me? Don't turn your face against me. I'm all alone and so forth. We need to know sometimes that it's okay to say those things to our Father God, to just share our heart, our fears, our concerns with him. And doing that because I, I promise you he wants to be with you. He wants to see you through whatever it is you're going through. In doing that, you're inviting him into the various parts of your life, all the parts of your life. He wants you to know that you're near. And so just like with me, I know it because I didn't just live it. I've seen it in the lives of so many other people. You ask him and he's going to say, I'm right here. Ask him, turn towards him, start living in relationship with the one you've been made to be loved by. From that will flow your ability to live in relationship with others in ways you've not yet experienced as well as help you become a person that others can live in relationship with because they need that too. 
it starts with Jesus. Ask him. He will tell you, yes, my son, yes, my daughter, yes, my child, I am here. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You are not alone. Thank you for joining us this week. Our prayer is that through this week's topic, you have been encouraged in the truth and discovered tools for further freedom in your true identity, one created for and loved by God, one where shame has no say. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the No More Shame podcast so you don't miss next week's topic. You can also follow us on Instagram at nomoreshame underscore podcast for encouragement and reminders throughout the week. Join us every Monday for new episodes that will empower and equip you to live in the freedom of your true identity.